Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning. It is good to be with you this morning, and we are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Galatians. And our passage this morning is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. This wonderful book that the Lord inspired Paul to write is a great encouragement for us. It provides us with wonderful, profound gospel truth that helps us to orient our hearts and our minds around the truth of Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful reminder. It is a wonderful encouragement to us. Paul Tripp said, The gospel of Jesus Christ is profoundly more than a message about our entrance and our exit. Often the gospel gets reduced to the gospel past, the moment when by grace we saw our sin and trusted in Christ for our forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Or the gospel is lessened to only the gospel future, the glorious destiny that is secured for us by grace. Many believers have a pretty good grasp of the gospel past and the gospel future, but they live with a significant gap in the middle of their gospel. They don't understand how the present implications of the person and work of the gospel change how to think about and respond to everything right here, right now. Sadly, many Christians suffer from living in a relatively constant state of gospel amnesia, the fruit of which can be seen all around us. And the point that he is making is that the gospel has wonderful and profound implications for our lives here and now. And I would want to clarify that understanding what he refers to as our gospel past and our gospel future are exceedingly important for unpacking the implications of the gospel here and now. It is good and right to meditate on our salvation, on what Christ has done and accomplished for us. And it is good and right for us to meditate on our future, our glorious future with Christ and his kingdom. Thinking on these things, reflecting on them, meditating on them are absolutely necessary for us to rightly apply the gospel here and now. But applying the gospel to our lives here and now does go beyond reflecting on the gospel past and meditating on our glorious future. By God's grace, we want to bring the gospel to bear on the entirety of our lives. We want to bring the gospel to bear on our affections and emotions, our thoughts and attitudes, our words and deeds. We want to bring the gospel to bear on all our relationships, on our friendships, on our marriages, on our parenting, with our neighbors and co-workers. We want to bring the gospel to bear on our work and on our recreation. We want to see the fruit of the gospel impacting every area of our lives. And one thing we need to humbly acknowledge is that it is easy for us to think and respond and act in ways that are out of step with the truth of the gospel. As a matter of fact, we are going to see in our passage this morning that even a great church leader, a hero of the faith, was not immune to getting off track. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, and I encourage you to follow along. Paul wrote, 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, at the beginning of his letter, in the first couple of chapters... Paul was defending his authority as an apostle in the church. Before he got to the heart of his message, he wanted to be clear that he had the authority to proclaim the message. He explained to the Galatians that he had been chosen by Christ. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, had appeared to him and saved him and called him to be an apostle in the church. And moreover, he delivered to Paul the message of salvation, the gospel. In chapter 1, he explained how he received the gospel directly from Jesus and independently of any man. At the beginning of chapter 2, he highlighted the agreement between he and the, uh, the Jerusalem apostles on the gospel message. Although he received the gospel message independently of any man, he agreed on the message of the gospel with the other apostles, including Peter and James and John in Jerusalem. As John Stott said, Paul is at pains in this passage to show that he was in full agreement with the Jerusalem apostles and they with him. On the one hand, he received the gospel independently of any man. And on the other hand, he was in full agreement with the other apostles. And the fact that they were in full agreement was not because he had received the gospel from them, not because it was a tradition passed down to him, but because Christ had revealed it to him just as Christ had revealed it to the other apostles. So he impressed upon them that he had the authority to be an apostle, to preach the true gospel 
message. And he was impressing this upon them so that they would believe the gospel that he proclaimed rather than turning to another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Then in our passage this morning, he took a step further. He was so confident in his authority as an apostle that he was willing to rebuke one of the pillars of the church when this pillar of the church was living in a way that was out of step with the truth of the gospel. After recounting his visit to Jerusalem, where he and the other apostles were in full agreement on the gospel, Paul told the story of what took place when Peter visited Antioch. And it sure seems as though it was a tense moment. If you don't like conflict, you would have felt very uncomfortable if you would have been there. Paul and Peter were two prominent leaders of the church. Both had been used by the Lord to preach the gospel to many people. Both had seen many people come to faith in Christ through their preaching. Both had been used by the Lord to perform incredible, miraculous deeds. Both had been given authority by Jesus to build up the church. Yet here they were, in open conflict before the church in Antioch. So what happened? Paul said that he opposed Peter to his face because Peter stood condemned. In other words, he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain individuals arrived in Antioch, Peter had been enjoying table fellowship with the Gentile believers. He was eating meals with these non-Jewish people. And Peter knew there was nothing wrong with enjoying close fellowship with the Gentiles in this way, even though it meant he was not observing Jewish dietary restrictions, which was an important Jewish identity marker. He knew his behavior was perfectly acceptable because of what the Lord had revealed to him. We read about this in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, the Lord appeared to a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and told him to send for Peter. At the same time, the Lord gave Peter a vision so that he would respond favorably when Cornelius sent for him. And here's what we read in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey in approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. The animals that Peter was commanded to eat included animals that were unclean, according to Jewish law based on Leviticus chapter 11. Peter was taken aback. He was taken aback by this vision. Why would the Lord tell him to kill and eat these things that he was forbidden to eat. When Peter went to Cornelius' house, the meaning of the vision became clear to him. In verses 24 through 29, we read, And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. John Paul Hill writes, God was overturning the old clean-unclean distinctions and dietary laws in general, along with all other ceremonial laws in the Mosaic Covenant, including laws about sacrifices, festivals, and special days, and circumcision. Nothing like this was to get in the way of fellowship with Gentiles. Peter received a direct revelation from the Lord that he should not consider any person unclean and that nothing should keep him from enjoying fellowship with Gentile believers. He knew this. He understood this. He embraced this and practiced this. While he was in Antioch, he enjoyed meals and close fellowship with Gentile believers until some men from James arrived. Then he withdrew from the Gentile believers, fearing the judgment of these men. Now, a little side note, we might wonder, why would James send emissaries who would argue that it was necessary for Jewish believers to separate from Gentile believers if they did not live like Jews. Didn't James agree on the gospel along with Paul? Well, what we see in the book of Acts is just because they claim to come in the name of James, it does not mean that James actually sent them to do what they came to do. We see this in Acts 15. In Acts chapter 15, we read about what we refer to as the Jerusalem Council, where the church agreed that Gentile believers did not need to become circumcised in order to be received as true believers. And so the church then sent out a message to other churches. And here's what we read in Acts 15, 24. They said, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So we see there was a problem with people going out and teaching things that they were not authorized to teach, that they were not supposed to teach. And that is likely what happened in Antioch. Although they likely claim to come from James, it's not as though James was telling them to teach these things. Nevertheless, things changed for Peter when the men of the circumcision party arrived on the scene. The circumcision party advocated following the ceremonies of the Mosaic law, including circumcision, food, and special days. In other words, they would have frowned upon Peter's behavior of eating with the Gentiles. And when they arrived, Peter succumbed to fear of their judgment and withdrew from the Gentiles separating himself. You can imagine how this made the Gentile believers feel. Why is Peter withdrawing from us? What's changed? Have we done something wrong? 
Do we need to do something else in order to be true believers, in order to be fully welcomed and received and embraced as members of the church? His conduct in separating from these believers was likely confusing and hurtful. And as Paul pointed out, he was being hypocritical. You are giving the impression that our Gentile brothers and sisters need to live like Jews in order for them to be fully included and embraced as believers. You, Peter, a Jew, don't even live like a Jew. Yet in front of this group of people, you are play-acting as if you believe it is necessary to separate from Gentile believers unless they live like Jews. The fear of man caused Peter to act in a way that was hypocritical, confusing, and hurtful. Moreover, his actions contradicted the truth of the gospel. Before we unpack how his actions contradicted the truth of the gospel, I want us to reflect on what took place here. Peter was one of the 12 disciples, if not the leader of the 12 disciples. He spent three years with Jesus, listening to Jesus teach publicly and privately. He witnessed Jesus perform extraordinary miracles. He witnessed Jesus enjoy table fellowship with the tax collectors and the sinners. He even told Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when he made this profession, this right profession, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He was an eyewitness to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in a unique and powerful way. He preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost to a huge crowd, and 3,000 came to faith in Christ. The Lord used him to perform profound miracles. When the Sanhedrin threatened him for preaching the gospel, he did not back down. He was willing to go to jail for Christ. Yet, after all of that, here he was in Antioch, giving in to the fear of man, acting hypocritically, and conducting himself in a way that was out of step with the truth of the gospel. And the point here is not to shake our heads and say, tisk tisk, Peter, you should have known better. You of all people should have known better. Rather, the point is to produce in us a profound sense of humility. If Peter could give in to temptation and act in a way that was out of step with the gospel, how likely are we to give in at times and be guilty of the same thing? Hopefully, as we reflect on Peter's failure, we will examine our own hearts humbly, honestly, and meaningfully. How often and how easily is our conduct not in step 
with the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we want to believe the true gospel and we want to keep in step with the gospel in the way that we live our lives. We want to help each other with this. Sometimes we need to be Peter and sometimes we need to be Paul. Sometimes we need correction and sometimes we need to give correction. Sometimes we need someone to point out to us how our thinking, our attitudes, or our actions are out of step with the gospel. We all need this. And we need the Lord's grace to help us receive this graciously. We need the Lord to put to death defensiveness in us. Because we all have what Paul Tripp refers to as an inner lawyer. We all have an inner lawyer that rises up to our defense when someone calls us out or offers some correction. Our inner lawyer knows how to make a case to defend us. Our inner lawyers are smart. They know how to defend us. They know how to blame shift and all sorts of things. And so we need to ask the Lord to put this to death in us. So that we can humbly receive correction, recognizing that we are sinners. We need correction. We need help. Proverbs talks about the wisdom of those who receive correction. And sometimes we need to be the one to give correction. We need to point out where a brother or sister is getting off track. But when we do this, we need to make sure that we are motivated by love. Oh, it's so easy for us to bring correction or criticism when we are angry, when we feel hurt or wounded. It's so easy for us to, to give critical feedback with wrong motives. But we need to be able to give critical feedback, but we have to do so with a heart of love and care, with the aim to do good for the person with whom we are bringing correction. We want to do so with humility, recognizing that we are just as guilty as this person. We are just as sinful as this person. Every single one of us will find ourselves out of step with the gospel at various times. We need to be willing to graciously and humbly give and receive correction. In verses 15 and 16, Paul went on to explain how Peter's actions undercut the truth of the gospel. He said, we, as in you and I, Peter, are Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. He was saying that being Jewish does not give us an advantage regarding justification over the so-called Gentile sinners. Even if we do our best to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law as Jews, we will fail. We cannot 
justify ourselves. We know that a person is only justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We will only be declared innocent and righteous in the eyes of the Lord by believing in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that even though every single one of us has fallen far short of God's righteous standards and are therefore deserving of judgment and condemnation, God has made a way for us to escape the judgment and the condemnation we deserve by providing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And Jesus came into the world and lived a perfectly sinless life. The only one. Every single, every single other person has fallen short. But Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He is the only one who perfectly obeyed the will of the Lord. And he did so for our sake. He perfectly fulfilled the law for us. So that he could be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. After living that perfect life without sin, he died upon the cross to take the punishment we deserve for our sins, for our failures in breaking the law. He died as a substitute, taking the punishment in our place so that we can escape the judgment and the wrath that we deserve. And he rose from the grave, conquering death, and ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. The good news is that everyone who believes in him does not need to fear that final judgment. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be counted as righteous, not because of our deeds, not because of our ability to obey God, but because through faith in Christ, God gives us the gift of Christ's righteousness. He counts us as righteous. He declares us to be innocent and just in his eyes. This is the Beautiful, glorious gospel. And right there at the center, right at the heart of the gospel, is the doctrine of justification by faith. We are declared just and righteous and innocent in the eyes of the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. Because a person is only justified by faith in Christ, Paul said, we too, Peter, have placed our faith entirely in Jesus Christ and not works of the law. And just in case, just in case he wasn't being clear, just in case someone was missing the point he was clearly making, just in case there was any confusion, one more time he added, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Look, Peter, we are justified by Christ and not works of the law. The Gentiles are justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law. Anyone who is justified is justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law. So why, Peter, are you giving the Gentile believers the impression that they must live like Jews for you to welcome them into fellowship as fellow believers? See, every single one of us is welcomed into the family of God by Christ through faith. Not by our good deeds, not works of the law, not because we have obeyed. We have all been welcomed in the family of God by Christ through faith. John Stott put it this way. He said, Paul was reminding him of the gospel which they both knew and which they held in common. On this matter, there was no difference of opinion between them 
They were agreed that God accepts the sinner through faith in Christ and the work he finished on the cross. This is the way of salvation for all sinners, Jew and Gentiles alike. There is no distinction between them in the fact of their sin, and there is therefore no distinction between them in the means of their salvation. Now, if God justifies Jews and Gentiles on the same terms through simple faith in Christ crucified and puts no difference between them, Who are we to withhold our fellowship from Gentile believers unless they are circumcised? If God does not require this work of the law called circumcision before he accepts them, how dare we impose a condition upon them which he does not impose? If God has accepted them, how can we reject them? If he receives them into his fellowship, shall we deny them ours? He has reconciled them to himself. How can we withdraw from those whom God has reconciled? Justification by faith is central to the gospel and therefore brings clarity to who we are as God's people. We are those who have been welcomed into the family of God by Christ through faith. We belong to God. We belong to Christ. We belong because we have believed God's grace at work in us, producing saving faith in Christ, is what we have in common as God's people. We are different in many ways, and that is good, that is glorious, that is wonderful. God saves all kinds of people who are different in all kinds of ways. Yet what we have in common is that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. And what we have in common is far greater than any differences that we have among us. And therefore, we welcome one another. We welcome one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I love seeing the differences amongst people in the life of the church. I love seeing diversity in all kinds of ways because it's a powerful reminder that no matter How we are different, we are united in Jesus Christ. It speaks to the power of the gospel. So justification by faith is central to the gospel and brings clarity to who we are as God's people. Peter, who was an influential pillar of the church, was obscuring the glorious truth that we are justified by faith by his actions. And therefore, Paul needed to bring the measuring stick or the plumb line of the gospel to bear by pointing out his error. The gospel is the plumb line or the measuring stick by which we evaluate our teaching and our lives. And Peter needed to be brought back in line with the truth of the gospel. No one is above needing correction, not even Peter. In verses 17 to 21, Paul seemed to address an argument that was made against the good news that we are justified by faith in Christ and not works of the law. Perhaps some were saying, if you are telling people they are justified by Christ and not works of the law, then aren't you just encouraging people to sin and break the law? Doesn't that make Christ responsible for people's sin? Doesn't that make him a servant of sin? And Paul responded by showing them how they were totally missing it. They were totally misunderstanding justification by faith. 
He said, if I rebuild what I tore down, meaning if I return to the law for my justification, I won't become righteous. I will have actually violated God's will and be deemed a transgressor. He turned the tables on those who are making the argument. He's saying, you think that it's by works of the law that we need to be righteous, but God has provided a way for us to become righteous, and it's through faith in Christ. And so if I, therefore, try to go back to works of the law, I'm actually the true transgressor. I am actually violating God's will. Then he said, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Tom Schreiner writes, when did believers die to the law? They died when Christ died. And because believers are united with Christ, they share in his death. The decisive event in salvation history is the death of Christ. The era of the law ended at the cross and believers died to the law's rule over them when they died with Christ. As believers, we have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law through his sinless life and took the punishment we deserve in our place because we have all broken the law. And with Paul, we can say, I have been crucified with Christ because through faith in Christ, our old sinful self, our old law-breaking self has been put to death. And that is wonderful news, but that is not all. Our old self has been put to death, and now Christ lives in us. He said in the life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, this is true for all who believe in Jesus. All who believe in Jesus have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Our old selves have been crucified with Christ. And now we have a new life whereby Christ lives and dwells in us. The lives we now live, we live by faith in Jesus who loves us and gave himself for us. Therefore... The idea that justification by faith frees us up to live a life of sin is ludicrous. It makes no sense. Because we are justified by faith, Christ dwells in us. And that is the greatest motivation and the greatest power to live a life that is pleasing to God. Faith in Christ is what enables us to actually live for God's glory. Our justification by faith does not give us the freedom to live a life of sin. No, it gives us something immeasurably better. Our justification gives us the freedom to live our lives for the glory of God. If anyone thinks... That justification by faith is a license to sin. They've misunderstood. They haven't known and encountered Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, by faith, we are justified. And by faith, Christ 
lives in us. He changes our desires. He changes our attitudes. And his power is at work in us to make us more and more like him. To grow us in godliness and holiness so that God will be honored in us. And that is far better than any efforts we can offer. That is far better than our own ability to try to obey the law. Knowing that we have been justified by faith and not works of the law, knowing that we have been united to Christ and he now lives in us, we want to work together to keep in step with the gospel. We want the gospel to permeate our hearts and minds. We want the gospel to permeate our relationships. We desire for our community to be shaped and saturated by the gospel. Believing the gospel goes beyond intellectual assent. It's not merely about checking the right boxes in regard to our doctrine. It's possible to check all the right boxes, to believe the right statement of faith, to ascribe to the right statement of faith, and yet not keep in step with the gospel. We most certainly want to hold fast to sound doctrine. This was a huge burden in Paul's letter, that the Galatians would believe the true gospel and not believe any false gospel. So it is absolutely essential and necessary that we believe the true gospel, that we hold fast to sound doctrine. And as we do so, we want to work together to apply the gospel to our hearts and lives. We want to recognize how believing the gospel is meant to shape our lives here and now. We want that to be evident in our lives together as a church family. You see, Peter was out of step with the truth of the gospel and the way he was failing to welcome the Gentile believers when certain men from James arrived. And we need to recognize that as we apply the gospel to our hearts and lives and to our church, we are those who welcome one another, who embrace one another, who love one another, who show each other kindness and grace and mercy. I want to read to you Romans 15, 1-7, because I believe we get a picture here of how the gospel is meant to permeate the life of the church. Here Paul wrote, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Oh, do you see how applying the gospel under requires us to understand how Christ has acted toward us. It requires us to understand how he has treated us. We forgive because Christ has 
forgiven us. We love because Christ has loved us. We show patience because Christ has been patient toward us. We welcome one another because Christ has welcomed us. You see, applying the gospel to our lives here and now involves growing in our understanding of how Christ has treated us and taking that and then applying it here and now to our own lives, to our own church. Though we have all fallen short, though we are all wretched sinners, Christ has welcomed us. And we too are to welcome one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, and we confess that many times and in many ways, our conduct is not in keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. And we humbly ask you here and now that you would open our eyes to reflect on our own hearts, our own lives, to examine everything in the light of the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would make known to us where, where and when we are out of step with the gospel, that you might grant us repentance, grant us humility. Help us to be those who give and receive correction with humility, with grace, with love. Help us to work together to keep in step with the gospel. The gospel might bear good fruit in our lives and in our church for your glory. We humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.